Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to continue our talk on the prevention of chronic pain. So what sort of, this is one of these core competencies that I think are very important. We'll touch all the other ones eventually as well. Nothing new to add to our cannabis talk, uh, but I'm always looking at uh, any information that's coming in. So when we left uh, here last week, we were talking about how these glial cells, these non-nerve cells, interact with the nerve cells, so the neuronal cells and the non-neuronal cells. So we were talking about how these glial cells are like passengers jumping on and off a train and how they start to influence communication that happens at the terminal. So the terminal is that synapse that happens between neurons, and so that starts to kind of change as well. So we start to see this thing called neuroplasticity plasticity. So neuroplasticity is actually where you start to see changes, you might start to see upregulation. And this is where we can bring in that term called sensitization. So sensitization is really that upregulation. And that can happen within the nervous system, in the central nervous system. So central nervous system is your brain and spinal cord. But it can also happen in the peripheral nervous system. So that's anything outside the brain and spinal cord. So this sensitization, so sensitization is the thing that starts to contribute to those problems when we start to see a change in sensation. So remember our patient um, last week had what we called hyperalgesia, and that's where she had incredible sensitivity when you touched her skin. The other name can sometimes be allodynia. They're a little bit different. Uh, Allodynia is more the altered perception. Hyperalgesia is the upregulation of that sensation. So that is coming from sensitization. And obviously there are other factors that are going to contribute to that as well. All right, so let's just imagine then. So we have a trigger. Remember we talked about the trigger can be an injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger. This really sets off the uh, pain system to sense a threat and it wants to respond to that threat. So that trigger causes these glial cells to activate. You get this inflammatory response that's happening through these glial cells. And what they do is they kind of stay there. They kind of tell us when something's wrong. And once the tissue heals, everything comes back to normal. So we call that, we get homeostasis gets maintained and pain resolves. So that's usually what happens when we look at acute pain. So let's just imagine that these glial cells, for whatever reason, and we're going to dig into that in a little bit, start to become overstimulated. So they start to become dysregulated. So you can just imagine that they're going to actually cause persistent neuroinflammation. That causes that synapse to upregulate. So this is where that sensitization is happening. So it's happening within the central nervous system and it's happening outside the central nervous system. So then what we start to see is that, that remember that, that we talked about the two circuitries, the nociceptive circuitry and the higher learning circuitry. So what starts to happen is that the input from that nociceptive circuitry starts to kind of get uh, lost. It's not as important when we start to see this upregulation. Now, can there be influence coming from nociceptive? Yes. But the uh, higher learning circuitry is actually what's starting to take over. So this is what makes it really complicated because the messaging that's coming down from that higher learning circuitry is that there's something dangerous or bad. Doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's something is dangerous or bad. So this starts to cause this thing called pain chronification, which is that transition from acute to chronic pain. And this leads to ongoing pain or persistent pain. So 
I love, I use this quote again, what we talked about previously from Nathan and Ding in our neuroinflammation uh, podcast is that the fundamental problem regarding inflammation is not how often it starts, but how often it fails to subside. So it is the messaging that's coming down from the higher learning circuits. There are other things that are going to drive it that we're going to talk about in a sec. So once you start to see pain chronification, you get into chronic pain, there are a whole bunch of other forces that actually cause persistent pain to persist. And we'll talk about that. So what's important is also to see chronic pain as a glyopathy and not a neuropathy. So we talked about that previously. That means these glial cells who start to become dysregulated, start to upregulate the pain signaling from the input coming from these higher learning circuitries, start to begin to take over. So chronic pain, in theory, is seen as a glyopathy and not a neuropathy. So the take-home message is that when pain becomes chronic, that peripheral neuroanatomy, so that's the nociceptive circuitry, becomes less important, and central mechanisms such as central sensitization, neuroinflammation, and psychological factors such as fear, anxiety, pain avoidance, gradually start to take over, necessitating a shift in our management directed more at the central nervous system. Now, the challenge is, is so when we look at our patient that's two months out, she may not be ready to start thinking about making that shift. She wants you to fix it. And sometimes what happens is they may want you to take out that hardware, which is not going to happen, but that creates this more upregulation and uncertainty because, you know, that there is a belief that the hardware may be actually doing this as well. So that readiness piece becomes really important. So what is the readiness to move from a fix-it to I need to manage it. And this is the hard part early on. So how we're communicating this information, how we're acknowledging that what they're feeling is real, even if there's nothing dangerous or bad happening in the tissue, how we're listening to their pain story is really, really important. The other thing that I'll say is super important from what I can see from the literature, especially in these early phases of acute pain, when people are not recovering the way they should, is that fear pays, plays an incredible role in what's driving sort of that alarm system. So that fear can be coming from uncertainty, unpredictability. It can be coming from uh, not knowing what you as a health care provider can do or are going to do to them, but also the fear of movement. So they will avoid certain movements because of fear of that pain actually escalating. The bottom line, so if I look at this acute pain patient who's two months out And we know that these patients are showing up in our family doctor's offices. They're showing up in emergency departments. How we work with the uh, specialty supports is going to become really important because we need to send the same messaging to these patients. We need to make sure that there isn't anything dangerous or bad. So I have to make sure that I'm examining them carefully. I'm looking for other pathology. It doesn't mean that I'm going to over-investigate them. It just need, I just need to make sure that I'm looking for those things. But the reality is, is that the longer we keep her in that acute pain treadmill, the longer we keep her there, the longer we keep pushing activity, pushing things that that are important, but how we approach them is going to be very different. I want patients with persistent pain to be moving, but I can't keep them in an acute pain treadmill. And even these patients that are transitioning from acute to chronic, I think approaching them from a pacing perspective is really important because we do want them moving. 
What moving does, it helps shift our brain from a pain focus to more of a function focus, despite the pain. So they're actually moving more. They're doing more rather than becoming more disconnected, uh, becoming less active, um, less isolated, which is often what we see when a patient is living in a chaotic pain state. So telling these patients to walk 15 minutes twice a day, you're probably going to get an eye roll. And the reason why is that they've already tried it, because they don't want to feel that way. They don't want to feel the pain that's there all the time. They want to get back to normal. But what the, what happens when they try this, because of that amplification that's happening, is that they'll get these significant flare-ups, which become more intense, more unpredictable as time goes on. So how we help them approach activity becomes really important. And we've talked about that in a previous podcast about how to get patients walking when they live with persistent pain or they have any kind of an amplification syndrome that's going on. So when do the goals of care shift from acute to chronic? And I think this is a fascinating area because I think we need to really explore this and narrow this down. Because what's happening now, if, if I look at this patient with acute pain, so she's two months out, she's got all the red flags that have me concerned about her, is that if I wait six months to a year, she not only is going to lose six months to a year, but she's also going to be in this state where she's um, feels very helpless and she's developed some habits and behaviors maybe that are not really helping her move forward. So these are habits and behaviors that are just helping her get through the moment, but they're not helping her live her life with connection and purpose. So trying to get back to some kind of normality. So when I talk about habits and behaviors that just get her through the moment, things that I think about are things like, you know, not moving, Things like, you know, even if we're getting patients to consider using some pharmacology, so certain pharmacotherapies that can be very risky, like cannabis or opiates. So they are strategies that can work. They do work. But what happens over time is that patients will develop tolerance. But very quickly, the brain says, okay, this is how I need to find calm. But eventually that cannabis can cause disconnection. Now, if that cannabis or if that opiate or if that treatment is helping them move forward, it may be reasonable. But if we're looking at two months out, chances are it would not be... um, It would not be a lane that I would want to go at that stage. I would want to help that patient find other strategies. Not saying that it wouldn't be appropriate, but you have to really risk stratify these patients around the high-risk medication. So looking at things that would be less riskful, that would help her develop uh, uh, habits and behaviors that are going to help her in the long term, which is staying connected and moving and having a life of purpose. Really important. So there's been a couple of models around this. So the old model was to wait. The new model literally says we should start looking at a transitional pain service that's based on a biopsychosocial model, which is really the the composition of when we look at how we experience pain in about two weeks' time. Now, I don't know how they came to that two weeks, but to me, that makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I would even argue that can we develop tools that actually screen patients to look at who's at risk and start to bring in some of those biopsychosocial um, behaviors or, or resources if we have them, like most of us don't. I live in a rural community. But when I look at cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that would be a wonderful thing to incorporate into a perioperative pain service. Uh, all the evidence seems to be pointing to that. There are other 
other areas of evidence that look at breathing. So breathing is by far the most important tool we have to get to that place of calm. So it takes us out of that survival mode, which is the limbic system, to that prefrontal cortex, which is the more rational, mindful part of our brain. So I'm sure that there are are individuals out there, and I'd love to talk to them about some of the things that they're doing to implement into their perioperative services. But we literally should start be start looking at doing something different in these patients at two weeks. So just to remind us that pain is not just a physical experience. It is a psychological, spiritual, and social experience. Now, the social, the spiritual aspect of pain is, is amplified more in the palliative care population. We often think of that as existential suffering. And what's important about recognizing existential suffering is that you cannot medicate it. Now, do patients with persistent pain have existential suffering? Absolutely. So that is for another podcast. But when I look at the literature around chronic pain, they really don't get into the spiritual aspect or that multidimensional aspect of spirituality and how that impacts us when we experience pain. And when I'm talking spirituality, I'm not talking about a particular religion. I'm just talking about some foundational beliefs. It's 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 a, it's sort of an interesting area, and uh, you know, it requires spirituality or spiritual uh, existential suffering. Really requires a listening and leaning in. Just to summarize that any acutely painful condition can lead to chronic pain. That process from acute pain to chronic pain is called pain chronification. So acute pain, just to remind us, is that normal, predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus. So that's the International Association of the Study of Pain. Chronic pain, however, is pain without biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing time. And that is also the definition that the International Association of the Study of Pain actually uses. So they're very different. One is physiological. One is pathological. That means it is a maladaptive response due to glial cell dysregulation that starts to cause the amplification in the pain system. So when pain chronification, uh, what are the risk factors? So we want to look at the risk factors that increase the risk of someone developing pain chronification. And I think this stuff is fascinating. And we probably did talk about some of this, but it doesn't hurt to kind of remind ourselves is that what's important is not so much the mechanism that's causing the pain, it's the meaning of that pain experience for the patient. So you can have something very minor, somebody step on a twig that has significant pain, or for a lot of our patients, they don't recall any kind of a trigger. So there is no trigger, but they can have significant uh, problems with pain as time goes on. So it's the meaning of that pain experience that becomes really important and not the mechanism. So I'm going to bring back in this two-hit hypothesis because I think it's just such a cool thing and it really starts to make a lot of sense, especially when I'm helping patients try and understand why their pain is not going away. And this is the work by Freebeck and his colleagues. uh, And the the article itself we can link in again to the podcast and to the webpage, sorry, uh, and it's out of cell neurosurgery. But it it is a really fascinating uh, concept. So where you tend to see this, we talked about it previously, when you think of the type 4 hypersensitivity reactions we see around antibiotics. So here's a patient that goes on, say, Bactrim for a urinary tract infection. Patient takes that Bactrim, does fine. And then you expose that patient again to uh, that antibiotic. And lo and behold, that patient develops a significant reaction. So that is really the basis of the two-hit hypothesis. So what happens is that the first hit starts to prime that nervous system. And it really is priming the, uh, uh, the immune system as well. But that patient recovers. 
and then they get a second hit. And that second hit is what I call that disruptive pain experience. That's when pain becomes persistent. So the question I love to ask patients, as we mentioned before, is when did pain become persistent in your life? And I will tell you that there are some patients that may not be able to to, to narrow you down, but there are some that can be very specific. So it's important to file that time uh, because it's going to become important in some of the dialogue that we have with patients for them to understand, okay, what actually happened. So exploring some of those forces that have contributed to the priming and that have also contributed to that disruptive pain experience. And we know that from that second hit, that's when pain becomes persistent. So let's look at that first hit. That what, what, it, what are the factors that we've identified in the literature that actually prime the nervous system? So factors that increase the risk of, of uh, pain chronification. So I like to link them into three different groups. The first group is what the patient brings to us. So that's something we have no control over. And I like to think of these as resiliency factors and there are um, vulnerability factors. And these factors come from their life story come from their life experiences, and it also comes from the habits and behaviors they're using to get through life. And all of us have some experiences that have built resiliency in our life, as well as things that have built vulnerability. So we're all going to be different when we come there. To that, uh, so when we're seeing patients, we need to come that they have been on a different journey, a different path in life, and we're just meeting them along that path. The second factor, group of factors that can actually influence the, the risk of someone developing pain chronification is how the individual experiences the pain that they're presenting with. So this is the acute pain that we were talking about. And remember, it's the meaning of that pain experience and not the mechanism that matters. So how they experience acute pain. So this is looking at the intensity of that experience, the severity, the duration or if it's repetitive. So if I look at someone who's going for surgery, who develops a complication of that surgery and has to go back to the OR, that patient is at risk if you're bringing in all these other factors. Um, If you have somebody who recovers from a surgery like uh, Virginia did way back, and the experience was quite significant, the amount of pain that she had in that shoulder, but she was not being validated in terms of what she was experiencing and given that reassurance that things would get better. It seemed that that messaging was okay, but the severity of what she was experiencing and the impact at that time did not appear to be validated, especially as time went on. So, um, and everyone's experience is going to be different. The third thing is our approach. So what do we do for patients when they're coming in with severe pain? They have a certain, uh, you know, uh, half empty, half full in terms of the vulnerability and, and resiliency in their, in their background and how we, how we legitimize and listen and uh, acknowledge that pain becomes really important. How we take it seriously and how we make sure that we examine them just to be sure that there's nothing new going on or any progression of a pre-existing pathology. So at that point, then the patient can go on to develop persistent pain or they can actually resolve and actually go on to normal everyday kind of functioning that we all do. So the other thing that's really important about the acute pain, if you look at the literature, is that, and we just talked about this a few minutes ago, but fear is an important driver of pain. So fear is something that we need to target 
we need to focus in and we need to make that patient feel as safe as possible. So it's not unusual for me to actually, if we have a major trauma that's going on in our emergency room and that person is awake and everybody's running around, because obviously we're busy doing what we need to do, it's really important to go to that patient and just uh, gently put your hand on their forehead and say, look, we're here for you. We've got your back. We're going to take care of you. Just those small bit of words can make a huge difference to how safe that patient feels and how they process. So I've had patients say to me, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. You know, and what we want to be able to say to them is that, look, your body is doing a great job right now. Everything seems to be okay. And even if that patient is not able to respond to me, I still give them those messages that we're going to take care of them. And as we as we sort of move through the resuscitation of that patient. So fear is something we need to target into. If that patient has had a previous experience uh, or a pre- previous history of anxiety, that is some, someone that's already been amplified. So we've already got a, an alarm system that's already been amplified. So those things are really important as well. But somebody who has fear or catastrophizing thinking has seven times the risk of the normal population, which is huge. So that's a real gift in the sense of how we help that patient and target in on that in a way that does not judge that actually supports that patient and lets them know that we do care about them. So what we want to do now is we want to look at the second hit. So what is it? So this is the disruptive pain experience. So patient has been primed. You get them a second hit so they have a second pain exposure or there's something else that, that has happened in their life and all of a sudden that pain just does not go away. That pain stays with them. So I often identify five forces that drive the chronicity of chronic pain. And this is all about prote- protection and survival. So people, it does not have to make sense. What is driving this is the limbic system. It's the survival mode. So these patients are in a chaotic pain state 24-7. And I always use the analogy, it's like being in a house with a house alarm that's on 24-7. So they're trying to understand what they should pay attention to. Where Where is this alarm coming from? What should I be doing? They're trying to do what they can to find that place of calm in a predictable way. So they're trying to bring calm and in a predictable way back into their life. And that's why you start to see these behaviors that disconnect them. So they become more isolated, more disconnected until they get to that point where pain decides everything, who they talk to, if they go out that day, if they eat that day. So pain is in charge. Ideally, what we want to do is get them to the place where movement and function is in charge despite their pain. And this is where pain self-management can be really important. So let's look at the five forces that we identified. And we've identified those previously. The big one is neuroinflammation, which comes from glial cell dysregulation. So we need to understand these glial cells, really important cells. Um, The second part is what we call sensitization, primarily central sensitization, although it can happen peripherally as well. And that's what gives you that pain amplification, right? So neuroinflammation, central sensitization, and then there is the messenger. So this is where the higher learning circuitry, remember we were talking about circuitry, how it sort of um, uh, sort of frames the uh, nervous system response. We have the nociceptive circuitry and that higher learning circuitry. So this higher learning circuitry, which is brain-based, starts to take over from that nociceptive or peripheral, so out in the tissue, regulation circuitry. So it starts to kind of influence how that pathway that comes down from the brain, so we call that the descending 
uh, inhibition pathway. So normally what that pathway should do is dampen down that pain messaging. But because the messages that are coming from the higher learning center, it starts to actually have an impact on how pain is inhibited. So you get this imbalance between a sending excitatory pathway and descending inhibitory pathway. So lots of research going on in those areas that are trying to modulate that, that messaging that's coming down. So this messenger, the higher learning circuitry, is really important. The other thing that starts to happen that drives the chronicity is more or less the pain protective behaviors that patients will start to adopt. So that those pain protective behaviors, normally with acute pain, they kind of go away. So what are some of those protective behaviors? One is what I call the pain tuck or the pain, uh, so they get into that uh, where they're moving forward a bit, right? So they're getting into a little bit of a pain tuck, their shoulders are rolling, their thumbs are pointing into each other, they bend at the hips, bend at the knees. That maneuver alone makes their tissue carry an extra 45 pounds of weight. So it's so cool now, you're actually starting to see patients who are using walkers that get them upright, right? Because the key of getting them upright is you're decreasing the work of the peripheral tissue. And as I mentioned in a previous podcast, it is not uncommon for patients who have persistent low back pain to go on to develop knee pain, right? Because they're in these pain tucks. 99.9% of the time, the patient is not aware that they're doing it because it's neuroplasticity, right? It's like walking. We don't think about walking. We just do it. And these patients are not aware that they're in these tucks. And it's very hard to undo it, especially if they've been in this pain state for 20, 30 years. So it's important to... Um, um, help patients point these out. Other pain protective behavior. So if we think about our patient who's got that shoulder pain and that tuck that she's doing where she's keeping the arm very close to herself, you know that this patient is going to get into headaches. She's going to get into more neck pain. So helping her undo that will take a little bit of work. But part of helping her do that is being gentle with her. She's not doing it on purpose and help her recognize how it may be starting to drive that pain. So the pain tuck, pain protective behaviors, muscle memory. So muscles are learning to stay tight, right? So this is where you can imagine if your muscles are working super hard, you're going to see some lactic acid buildup. You're going to get burning. This is really big in the neck and the lower back. And that's because these muscles are working so much harder. And uh, so we need to be aware of the muscle work uh, and also that movement work. And then there is fear. So fear is an important thing. It is a force that we need to target in. And this really is coming from our pain or brain memory. So fear is an important driver of persistent pain. So addressing those fear-based um, realities for that patient and being gentle with those as well. Because I can tell you with 150% certainty in patients that I have worked with who are living with persistent pain, they do not want to feel this way. They are not malingering. They're not making this happen. Generally, they just don't know how to start moving forward. So this condition is very, very real. So we probably should stop there because um, we uh, have a lot of information there. And plus, we're going to get digging into another aspect of this. Uh, and this is where we break down all of these different risk factors. Thanks for listening for another week. And we'll check in with you in another week's time. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.